For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Scott. I feel like Matt Damon in the movie The Martian. He's keeping track of how many days he's been on Mars before he was rescued. You know, we are now six months roughly into the COVID pandemic and all of its implications and, you know, consequences intended and unintended. Right. Uh, it sort of dwarfs everything else. You can't, uh, you can't plan much for the future. Usually this time of year, there's, you know, there's trips, there's air flights, there's, uh, you know, other things that you would be doing and you just, you just can't, uh, you can't do it. It's incredible. You know, here, yeah. Here in Montana, we've, uh, we've seen in ca- cases increase. At one point we had the lowest in the country. I don't know if we have the lowest anymore, but we've, we've had 65 deaths. You know, at one point we were at 10 or 12, you know, 55 of these deaths have come in the last, uh, you know, month or six weeks. Um, we're seeing more cases, and luckily we only have uh, one death in Monta- in Missoula, but we have almost 300 cases in Missoula, and you know we're we're sort of getting it after you know that sort of old data because new people are, are going through their incubation period, so to speak. So we don't really know where we're headed, and uh, you know it's having a devastating effect both here and around around the world. I mean, there's only about six. There's only a handful of countries we can even travel to. You talk about being nationalistic. This is the perfect time to be nationalistic because you can't go anywhere. My, my nephew um, just got stationed in in uh, Wiesbaden, Germany, for the army. He's a uh, he's a dentist, and so his wife and his two kids um, were, went over there. They have to quarantine for 14 days. They're only allowed out of their room for about 15 minutes every two hours. Oh just to get God. fresh air, you know, and, uh, you know, that's what we face, you know, almost in every developed country in the world. We are now, you know, the the country that no one wants to let cross their borders. You know, we have 4% of the world's population. We have 25% of the COVID cases and 25% of the deaths. It's so, what's so that's interesting, not, what's so interesting about this, if you think back to the presidential debates, uh, uh, towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year, everything that Bernie and Elizabeth were talking about, boy, do we wish we had that. Meaning, we wish we had better health care. We wish more, you know, uh, public health care. We wish we had um, an economy that um, that took care of people more uh, collectively. And as opposed to us closing our borders on people, they're closing them on us. So yeah. the tides, the tables have turned. Right, the table. We are not the uh, shining light on the hill anymore. Not we're at the, all. You know, we're not the uh, the exemplar nation anymore. Given given the way we've handled this, and I, I throw it directly at the feet of uh, of the federal government. This is a, this this requires a federal strategy. It requires a federal response. The countries in the world that took this serious from the very beginning and shut everything down and was serious about it, have recovered and are back operating almost almost to a country. Well, look, our guests today are Tino Sonora from the University of Montana and Cindy Farr from the city and county of Missoula. And, and they'll have some good information. They've been do, both doing an excellent job. Missoula is way ahead of the curve on handling this as, as, as good as any local community could handle it. A hundred percent agree. Looking forward to it. Back after this break with Tino Sonora and Cindy Farr. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We are back with our guests, Dr. Tino Sonora, who is the associate director of, uh, and director of health research at. Uh, the Bureau of Business and Economic Research at the University of Montana, and our other guest, Cindy Farr, who is the incident commander for the COVID-19 response for the Missoula City and County Health Department. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for having us. So we are six months roughly into this COVID pandemic situation. And, um, Every day, it seems, when you wake up in the morning, you kind of go and check, you know, what are the numbers? You know, there's a chart that comes right up on my phone. How many how many more cases in Montana? How many more cases in the United States? How many cases, you know, worldwide? You know, how many people in the hospital? And then, of course, you take a look at the economic picture on this. So maybe we can first focus this for a couple of minutes on the economics of this. And then we can talk about the health side of it. And, and I, I will, uh, you know, defer to Tino on this. But let me just say in general, in January 2020, the unemployment rate in the U.S. was 3.6%. Montana was uh, slightly better, I think, at 3.5%. Now, you know, in August of 2020, the national unemployment rate is 11.1%. Montana, I think, is doing about 4% better at 7.1 unpercent unemployment. The big news, I think, of the last few days, we're recording this uh, uh, midweek, first week of August. The big news is that uh, for the second quarter of this year, the GDP lost 33% of its contracted 33%. Even in the Great Depression from 1929 to 1932, the G the GDP only contracted fifteen percent. Tino, what should we make of all of this? <laughs> well, this is you know I think last time we chatted we had, this thing had just started if, if memory serves, um, and I think a lot of people sort of guesstimated that the GDP growth was going to contract pretty severely in the second quarter, um, as well as the first quarter. Uh, this second quarter contraction of about thirty three percent is it is sort of an annualized quarterly rate. Uh, some people are looking for it to rise over the next, uh, over the third quarter, which we're in right now, uh, slightly, though that, that, again, that remains to be seen. But what's going on here is, is that in, in sort of response to the COVID, we had to use a really blunt instrument to try to get everything in check. And that was basically closing down the economy and, and not only in the United States, but many places around the world as well. And that blunt instrument, um, basically brought the, the economy to a standstill, um, and so you saw huge increases in, as you said, unemployment rates. Obviously, uh, personal expenditures started to decline pretty precipitously, have declined very precipitously. Uh, that, of course, bleeds into investment decisions around the future. Uh, so there's a lot going on here. Um, but I, you know, this it, it, this is one of I, I, most economists would say this was the most predictable recession on history because we knew exactly what was going to happen. We knew that once this was going to shut down. Once we started closing businesses to try to get this thing in check, that we were going to have a recession. So um, I think in the early days when we spoke last time, uh, I had just done some estimates of recessions and I kind of I, I turned out to be right, as it turns out. Um, but um, now here we are stuck. We're in this thing. Uh, we're going to potentially have protracted problems because now we're still having the, the, the federal governments arguing about uh, this extension of the CARES Act. Uh, the Democrat, the House of Representatives passed the HEROES Act, of course, about two or three months ago. Uh, and that's just been sitting on the desk. And now we're here once again at sort of the edge of the cliff, um, wondering if, if, if the House and the Senate can get together and, and pass another package to to um, uh, extend this unemployment insurance, which has gone away as of last week. And if that, if that doesn't go through, um, then I think we can look forward um, to a much more protracted recession um, on top of the uncertainty that people have about going out and doing what they have to do. So this is a, boy, this is a, 
this is a this is a very unfortunate time. Um, I know that um, I just want to say one last thing, and then um, that unemployment uh, claims, initial unemployment claims, came out today, and they have fallen, and, and in Montana as well. But if we look at continuing claims, um, that's still around, oh, I don't know, 15, 16 million people in continuing claims. Um, and this, this discussion about whether or not, you know, people, if they're given this unemployment insurance, um, if they would be willing to go back to work is kind of a, a non-starter because there's only 5 million jobs openings. I mean, so you've got 16 million people chasing 5 million jobs. Somebody's got to be unemployed. There, there's just no way around it. So we've got to, tr the only way we can kind of increase demand for more for employees is to try and get this economy kickstarted. So I think it would be, it's, it's kind of a, we need to get this this thing sorted out um, sooner rather than later. With the federal government basically borrowing at zero percent interest, uh, you know, this is almost kind of a no brainer. I want to get back to some of the you know the economic implications, but Cindy, incident commander, before we talk about what's fueling this, which is COVID cases and and COVID illness, what is an incident commander? Sounds like a very important title, and I'm sure it is. I've never had one like that. So what what does an incident commander do? Yeah, so when we are in a health crisis or an outbreak at the health department, we use the, um, the ICS structure, incident command structure, um, that came out of FEMA and NIMS, um, essentially to structure our personnel so that we have the ability to increase our response or decrease our response as needed. Um, it's used a lot in wildland fire and, you know, some other incidents like that. That's where it came from was wildland fire. And so as the incident commander, I'm uh, at the top of that chain and I have my command staff and they all have different functions. And so I've got my PIO who typically sets up my media requests and, um, you know, puts out my press briefings and stuff like that. And then I've got um, our my deputy incident commander, which is Ellen Leahy, who's also our health officer. Um, we've got a logistics chief um, who makes sure that there's supply they're ordering all of our supplies and um, keeping us supplied with everything that we need, including personnel. Um, and we've got operations, which is the biggest section um, under us. And we've got, I want to say, more than 80 people working in that section right now. And that includes our testing branch. That includes contact tracing and case investigation. Um, it includes all patient services, call center, all of that stuff. Um, we also have our plan section who keeps us um, kind of on track with our plans and safety who makes sure that we're all staying really safe through this whole incident. Um, so that's essentially my job is to make the executive decisions, approve um, anything that is going out publicly and um, really work with our team to do the best that we can to control this outbreak. So Missoula has 291 reported cases, roughly, as we're recording, and one death. I think statewide, there have been 65 deaths and about 4,500 cases. How are we doing in general? How's our plan in Montana working? So we believe that we're doing pretty good. We did um, have further restrictions in most of the other counties in the state because that's what we, me and our health officer and the rest of our team feel are the things that we need to do to protect our community from the spread of COVID-19. Um, and that has kept our numbers really manageable. Um, we are still seeing an increase in cases, but we knew that that was what was going to happen as we started the phased reopening and people started um, being around each other more. We expected to see an increase in cases. And what we're trying to do is just make sure that that case increase doesn't ex exceed our capacity to control it. And primarily, we're really keeping an eye on our healthcare infrastructure because we are a healthcare hub and serve many counties in Montana and not just Missoula. And so we have to keep a really close eye on how it's impacting our healthcare infrastructure to make sure that we're not over overwhelming our hospitals so that if somebody does get sick and they need treatment that they can get the treatment that they need so that they can recover from the disease as well as other things that are going to continue to happen like car accidents and heart attacks and strokes you know globally there's been about 19 million cases and 700,000 deaths so 
we're always focused locally on what's happening in Missoula and Montana and even the United States. But the U.S. is 4% of the world's population. We roughly have 25% of the cases and roughly 25 or so percent of the deaths. Does anybody want to take a stab at why is that? Why are we in that situation? Well, from my public health perspective, I can tell you that um, part of the reason that we are in that situation is that we do not have a national strategy for controlling this this disease. A lot of other countries have taken a more national nationalized approach to how it's going to be controlled. But in the United States, it's up to every state. And in some states like Montana, it's up to every county how you are going to control in your own communities compared to, you know, other places where they really have a national strategy that comes down from the top. And then the public health side just implements that national strategy. Yeah, and, we, and because you don't have a national strategy, you have a situation like early this week, I saw some photographs from the Sturgis motorcycle extravaganza, and they had pictures of 250,000 people gathered for sort of this opening, and I didn't, there wasn't a mask in the crowd. What, what, what's that going to do, Cindy, when those people go back home? I mean, it, it's impossible to think you're going to have 250,000 people from around the country gathered in one place in that kind of close proximity for two or three days and not have some kind of eruption. Yes, we fully expect any time that there's a, a huge event like that, it's going to impact not only the community that they, where they are holding the event, but also the community where people are returning to, as well as those communities like our own, where people are passing through on the way to and from that event. Because, you know, we know that with this disease, you have up to anywhere from two to 14 day incubation period, you could be contagious for two days before you ever have symptoms. And so as those people are passing through Missoula, then, you know, we can certainly expect that we are going to likely see an uptick in cases. Tino, you know, you're doing health research and, and looking at health policy. And Cindy just mentioned, we don't have a national strategy. We didn't have one at the beginning. We're six months into it now. We still don't have a national strategy. What, what you know, what, what's the holdup and, and what's going to be the outcome of this if we never have a national strategy? Well, um, I think, you know, not being a political scientist, you know, yeah. just looking at it as a layman, you know, obviously we, we have a lot of politicization of this whole thing, which is really, um, really been problematic in, in coming up with a cohesive strategy for this. It's not, and it's also sort of centered in, we can't let the economy die. I mean, that's, that's basically been the sort of underlying premise. So you've got these two, these, these two forces, which have just created a situation and environment whereby coming up with a cohesive strategy is just not viable. And part of that has to do, of course, again, I'm not a political science, part of this has to do with our, our, our style of government, a federal government, which is which is basically a state government. That the federal government has only control over some things um, in practice. Um, of course, when you have a health emergency, this type of issue is, is, is the, the federation just doesn't work. I mean, as Cindy alluded to, it's like if we could have uh, an event somewhere else, South Dakota or North Dakota or Florida or wherever, um, Health is a public good, meaning that we all consume it simultaneously. So, you know, I don't know what the, what is it, the R-naught is, is something like two to five or something on this thing, which is how, how much this thing transmits. Um, you know, one infected person can infect a lot of people. So now suddenly, without a national strategy of this, this, this sort of uh, this environment whereby somebody can just walk around and spread this this disease around to many people so is the, the sort of the, the analogy for this for is something like a, a television right if i'm watching tv i don't necessarily prevent you from watching tv so the good itself the tv program itself can be consumed by many many different people same, same thing with, with with health and so by not having this sort of national strategy you have a situation whereby these these quote-unquote externalities these other these things that are outside of any individual's control um can be uh, can have an impact on them, and so that's what we're that's what we're dealing with. And you know, I was in Idaho um, a few days ago, and there and there is no mask uh, requirement there, so it's kind of a shock after you've been here in Missoula, which I think has done a, a really good job. Just again, watching the numbers on a on a daily basis, uh, you know, 
to go somewhere else, it's, it's, it's sort of shocking. And I didn't see the Sturgis thing, but I did see something um, of a school in Georgia outside of Atlanta where the kids are all piled into a class, into a hallway with, with and not a mask in sight too. So, and they're having an explosion. You think they'd be very on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And what this is going to have an impact on is not necessarily today, but in the future, because again, if all of these people go get sick and suddenly we have to shut everything down again, and then we're, th- we're put into a situation where the long-term losses are certainly going to sort of outweigh the, the short-term costs that we're just, ha- uh, uh, or gains that we're having by opening up the economy. Because if we do have to shut it down again, um, as some states are doing, right? Um, and, and certainly Melbourne and Australia has just done it. Um, that's that's going to be very, very problematic over time. So I think we're looking at a good 18 months to 24 months where we're going to sort of keep seeing this unless we kind of get a good control and grip on this or, if the, or when the vaccine becomes, I, sh- I should say, universally available, not just available, but universally available. Let's do a quick ID. Our guests are Tino Sonora from the University of Montana and soon to come back, Cindy Farr from <laughs> the city and county of Missoula. You know, Tino, I, you know, you had brought up Earl in the, your initial kind of, um, you know, part of the interview about unemployment and about just all, you know, it, it really opens up the door for all the, the, the incidences or things that have happened because of COVID, um, unemployment, other, you know, neglected health for people that have chronic issues or, or, or have undiagnosed issues. And I wonder what the impact of that is on the economy. Well, I think, you know, there's been quite a few commentators who said something effective, and and we've had this discussion before, that a lot of our social safety nets are essentially torn. I mean, you know, um, know, if I was a trapeze artist and and our our United States safety net was my net underneath me, I don't think I'd get on the trapeze. Um, What this has done is really sort of shine a light uh, and I'm not only one who believes this is really shine a light on a lot of the shortcomings of our system. So, for example, with the unemployment insurance um, in Europe, in many places around the world, when you become unemployed, you just wander down to your thing and say, hey, I'm unemployed. And, and then they give you a check and they say, well, keep looking for a job and and and, and off you go. But here it, it, it was you have to you have to file for it with the state and then it has then they have to double check. And so it's, there's this huge rigmarole, this huge costs that are sort of confront the unemployed person to even just get unemployment insurance. It's not an automatic thing. And then you have to keep reapplying for it and reapplying for it. And of course, it's fine when there's only 12 people applying for unemployment insurance, but when you've got thousands and thousands and thousands applying and people are still waiting for some of their checks, you know, in some parts of the country, um, then that's the system doesn't work in this type of situation. Um, and I understand sort of the idea behind not making getting it too easy. Um, it creates what we refer to as moral hazard. It creates an incentive. And this is what a lot of the, the Senate side of this, uh, the, sorry, the Republican side of the Senate is saying. And this is true is it creates a sort of disincentive from working. Um, but on the other hand, um, when you have a situation like this where there are no jobs and for, for whatever reason, um, it just, it just doesn't work. And likewise with the health system. I mean, our health system is, I, you know, words, words can't, I can't, I can't even put words to what it is. It, Let me ask you this, Tino. Yeah. You've done, you've done a lot of economic analysis and health research analysis. I've never seen a uh, situation like this where there is such a substantial group of deniers, essentially, that are out there that say, it's just a flu and you're not going to really get it. And there's no greater chance of getting this than getting hit by lightning and all of that sort of thing. So one question is, what would have happened if we did nothing? We didn't shut anything down. We just kept that business as usual, that whole kind of herd immunity idea. What, what, would, we, what would we be looking at right now? Well, I mean, you know, no one knows, right? No one has an answer. I mean, the closest we can come to is look at the experience of Sweden, which they, they, they did basically nothing. And they said, we're going to achieve here herd immunity um, and we're just going to keep the economy rolling along. Um, and it worked for a while, um, but now they're running into issues again with the growth of this thing. Um, and so that could have just delayed the decline in the economy, I, I suspect is what's going to happen. 
uh, or would have happened is that they're, and, and Japan's experiencing the same thing too. And now Japan's starting to shut down. They kind of took a very laissez-faire approach to, to this thing. Um, and now, and now cases are spiking and now they're starting having to backpedal and, and, and tread water and try and figure out what's the best course of action going forward. So the answer is, you know, no one really knows. And I don't know. Um, people think I have, a, I have a pretty decent idea that that's probably what would, what would have happened in the law over time. I think another thing that's important to note about places like Japan and Sweden and um, some of these Taiwan, for example, is they're much more homogeneous societies. Uh, they're much more have much more national identity than I think the United States does. And certainly over the past 20, 30, 40 years, as you well know, we have this growing divide between, and you know, racially, income-wise, I mean, on all scopes, the inequalities are, or I don't want to say inequalities, but divisions are rising politically. I mean, it's likely a sense of unity that, that would sort of say this rallying cry. And I'll just give you a quick example. During the Asian financial crisis of the mid-1990s, uh, 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 Korean foreign debt started to spiral out of control. And, wh and what the Korean government basically did was, was ask the residents, the citizens of South Korea, to give them money to get us out, to get South Korea out of this debt crisis. And people were like pulling out their gold teeth and donating it to the government to help pull themselves out of that crisis. And something like that, that kind of national unity, I don't think could ever exist here. So that's part of that. I mean, there's so many dynamics on, I mean, we could talk about this for the next seven years probably. There's right. so many dynamics going on here that I just, I don't, that's just what makes all this uncertainty all, all, all the larger. Well, it's pointed out to me and to some other people that we really are not one country. We're more like 12 countries, you know, overall. And, and these regional differences are very strong. Cindy, we were, we were just sort of chatting about this issue and maybe we can put it to, to bed once and for all. This whole issue of the denial of this, this is just a flu and not and people get, you know, not any more sick and there's just as many people that die from the flu, that die from corona and, you know, we should just kind of, you know, treat it like that. For once and for all, this is not just like the flu. No, this is absolutely not just like the flu. Um, there is some sort of misconception out there that the flu kills 300,000 people a year. Um, for the 2019-2020 flu season last year, the estimates of deaths from flu is 23,000 to 64,000 people died from the flu during that flu season. And we have now had significantly more deaths from COVID-19 than that. And so, yes, we I, I believe that People should take this seriously. It definitely makes a, a huge difference if people are taking it seriously and doing all of those precautions, as we've seen in lots of places that, you know, people are putting in precautions, then there are less people dying. Right. And it gets back to, we were, you know, Scott, we just told us there are people who just ignored the precautions. There are people that are willing to put a mask on to go hunting. There are people that are willing to put seatbelts on all the time because there's you know, they've gotten used to it, but there are people who just completely refuse to engage in, in, in safe behavior. And, I, you know, we've never seen that in, in this country to the extent. Sure, there are anti-vaxxers and there are some other people that resist, you know, proven science. But in this case, this the, the reaction as shown by Sturgis and as shown by the Georgia school situation or, uh, you know, Texas lieutenant governor basically saying if kids get sick at school, they could just go home. I mean, it's just, it's just sort of the most anti-science and anti-factual, um, you know, reaction, pushback that I've ever seen. You know, and Tina, what, what, why is that? Why is that? You know, why uh, do we see so much of that in, in, in this? Has it, it, has it sort of become the rallying cry for lots of other kinds of issues? I, 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 just, I don't, again, I'm, I'm not a political scientist, so I can't, I can only report, you know, talk to what I've read because I'm trying to figure it out too. Um, you know, I, and Cindy could probably speak to this more than I can, but there, there's been similar like anti-mask things in previous pandemics. I think there was a big anti-mask, you know, we don't believe the science kind of thing during the, the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic as well. So, you know, this is not something that's, 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 that's new. This is kind of the uh, same thing's been going on. You know, part of that I think has to do with sort of the American ethos of, of 
you know, we are free and we can do what we want and we have these rights that are that, uh, this pursuit of happiness. And, and it's very sort of, in a, in a way, very sort of self-centered. Um, and, and I think that what we sort of end up losing is that my happiness can actually benefit your happiness too and vice versa or, you know, and that's why I was talking about earlier about these externalities is you, you, when somebody is ill and refuses to wear a mask, it's not just an impact on them. I mean, I don't wear a mask, you know, no one's wearing a mask to protect them from you. It's it, from somebody else. It's always about protecting others from yourself. That national unity thing, you know? Yeah. The lack of national strategy. A friend of mine lives in Italy. And when this started hitting hard, Italy, they just adopted, you have to stay at home. If you're caught out of your home, it's a 500 euro fine, period. You know, in, in, uh, in uh, Singapore, if you don't do a 14 day, when you get to come back to the country, or if you're, if you don't do a 14 day isolation, you walk out of the, the, the facility that you're in, you put in jail, you know, That's and they amazing. have incident. That's amazing. Cindy, I'm, I'm actually curious to know how is our adoption of masks uh, as a county and as a, a city compared to, let's say, Gallatin County or some of the other counties where there's been a higher incidence of cases? So we adopted the mask rule through the Board of Health and the health officer orders before the governor put in the mandate that everyone in the state needed to wear masks. I'm not sure how much it's being enforced in other counties. I can tell you that here we take it seriously. We've got an entire enforcement team at our health department that when they mm -hmm. have get complaints about a business who's not enforcing the mask rule that they actually go out and visit with that business and they educate them on why this is in place. And, you know, when it comes to other counties, I'm not sure how much they're actually doing that. Um, I can tell you that, you know, we ramped up our response really fast. We basically had our response in place before we ever got our first cases in the United States because we had a feeling it was going to come here. And so we prepared really early in here in Missoula County. And we also are not afraid to take those really hard steps that are going to um, protect the public that some people are just really not going to like. And I think that some of some of that, you know, we're, we're just handling it differently here in Missoula. Well, we're in the midst of tourist season i noticed new york city which hasn't which had three consecutive days this week with no deaths um are putting up checkpoints for cars that are coming into the city and are you know are checking uh out-of-staters we have a lot of out-of-staters i've been looking around town and you know when i'm stopped at near a motel i just out of curiosity look to see what the license plates look like and they're from all over the place how is how is that affecting us at this point? Well, you know, we don't have any solid proof that people from out of state are actually bringing it to Montana. And some of the things that we are actually seeing at this point is that we are seeing clusters of cases. And so that tells us that we're giving it to each other. Um, we're definitely giving it to our family, friends, our coworkers um, in settings such as family reunions, weddings, funerals, workplaces. Um, but that said, you know, we didn't, we had a long time without any cases. And then as soon as there was no longer a 14 day quarantine in place for people coming from out of state, we made it exactly one incubation period of the virus and we started having cases again. And so it was brought back into our state from people that were coming in. But right. now we're all spreading it to each other. Well, a good example of that was what happened in uh, down at uh, Big Sky. Uh, they're building a new uh, resort there. They're building a, a montage resort at Spanish Peaks. And a lot of the construction workers are bussed in to the site from Bozeman and from the surrounding areas because the construction worker population in Big Sky is not very substantial. And there were 116 of the workers that tested positive for COVID. And I'm sure that was not only because they were together on the work site, but compounding that was they were taking buses to the site. And I can't tell whether they were wearing masks or not, but, but knowing that particular subset of the demographics, I would think that they probably weren't wearing, weren't, uh, you know, abiding by the mask rule uh, uh, to the extent they should. So I think it's very important to point that out, Cindy, to our listeners, that these group events, 40, 50 people, you know, at a, picnic somewhere, um, you know, 
uh, all these large summer gatherings at Flathead Lake are going to lead to uh, an increased incident. We have to try to figure out, you know, how to how to contain that. Yeah, we like to point out to the public that, you know, while the governor's orders and directives and our local orders and directives say that it's okay to have 50 people without social distancing, that doesn't mean that you should do it. If you can, if you can still practice social distancing, it's going to cut down on our incidence of disease. Cindy, well, the other, the other thing I'd like to add to that um, part of the conversation is that people think that it's either the economy or health, and it really needs to be both. It has to be both the economy and health because if the more people who get sick, that puts those those people out of commission. They can't work. They've exposed all of their coworkers, so now the business has to close down. So really, it needs to be a combination of both economy and health in order to get through the pandemic without either of them having to be majorly sacrificed. Is that, you know, that's why we encourage businesses to come up with a plan to keep their employees separated from each other, because we've seen it in Missoula and all across the country that, you know, one or two employees get sick and they've exposed everybody in their workplace, then that business has to close because they can no longer operate. Right. So it, people really should stop trying to think of it as one or the other. It really needs to be both. Right. This is a lot to me like drinking and driving, right? Um, somebody might say, well, I can handle a beer, but it's not. we're not worried about you. We're worried about your car swerving into somebody else and killing innocent people. And, you know, that's, you know, that's sort of what we're, we're facing now. Um, Cindy, I'm not a doctor, although I play one on the radio um, very often. We... <laughs> There seems to me to be, from the literature I've read, sort of a viral loading um, uh, element to this, which means the more people you are around that, that may have it, like in the crowd environments, the more, more ill you might get. I've noticed that from, from some of the things where uh, you know a perfectly healthy 35-year-old doctor in an emergency room seeing 30, 40 patients a day dies from it when somebody who may come in contact with just one person, you know, has more mild effects. You know, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I truly believe that more research needs to um, come out about this, but the research that's coming out right now and what we're seeing anecdotally, like the, the situation you just described, is telling us that the more people that you're around who are sick, the sicker you're going to get if you if and when you catch it, compared to um, if you're only around one person who's sick. It is it does have a viral loading component. Um, the other the other thing that really lends itself to to that area of research is if you look at New York City how many people were getting sick and dying for so many months. And, you know, it's all about population density. If they leave their house, then they may come in contact with five or six or 10 people who were infected. Therefore, they're getting a more severe form of the disease, where in Missoula, if you leave your house to go to the grocery store, you could very easily only come in contact with one person. So, you know, that is one thing we have going for us here in Montana. Back after this break with Tino Sonora, and Cindy Farr. You know, Hunter... For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We are back with our guests, Dr. Tino Sonora, who is the Associate Director of, uh, and Director of Health Research at uh, the Bureau of Business and Economic Research at the University of Montana, and our other guest, Cindy Farr, who is the Incident Commander for the COVID-19 response for the Missoula City and County Health Department. In the New York City area, there were 32,000 deaths. 10 times what died at 9-11, you know? And I mean, you saw how the country responded to a 9-11 disaster in 2001. You know, it just seems that there's such a schism between taking this 10 times more seriously than 9-11 and, uh, and um, 
just shrugging your shoulders and saying, okay, we're going to send everybody back to school. What's been your conversations here locally, by the way, about uh, kids in Missoula going back to public school? So um, two answers to your question, um, or, you know, uh, just a comment on what you were saying about 9-11. To put it in perspective, the number of people that are dying of this disease every single day would be the equivalent of 50 full commercial passenger airlines crashing every single day and killing every single patient or every single patron that was on that airplane. So if we were to be looking at it like that, and that was what was happening, then the entire country would be in an uproar and be wanting to um, do everything they could to keep those planes from falling out of the sky. But because it's a disease, people just seem to uh, look at it much differently than that. Um, on, the, on the front of the schools, we are working very closely with uh, the superintendents of the schools in Missoula, and we've been looking at a lot of data with them. I have weekly meetings with them where we talk about the data and we talk about, you know, the R-naught. And right now, for, for people who don't know what the R-naught is, that, that's the, um, the number of people who become infected from one person who has the disease. And a week ago, our R naught was 0.9, so just less than one person would get infected if they came into contact with someone with the disease. This week, it's gone up to 1.04, and so we're seeing that steady increase. It's been steadily increasing since the beginning of June, um, which tells us that we have more disease in the community at this time, um, and that is one of the numbers that the school superintendents are, are looking at when they're determining how they're going to reopen schools. Um, each district has a little bit different plan for how they're going to reopen schools and whether they're going to go, you know, start with remote learning or they're going to have staggered start times and smaller pods of students. Um, but we've been trying to just work with them on all of the different things that they can do to prevent spread in a school setting. Um, we do know that kids between the ages of 10 and 20 are just as infectious and can spread the disease just as easily as an adult. There's less known about kids that are under 10, um, but some of the things that they do know is that kids under, under 19 and under um, essentially have less severe forms of the disease than adults do, and sometimes it presents differently, so it might just present as you know, they're just not a kid who naps and they really felt like they needed to take a nap and they got a little bit of a headache compared to adults who have the more severe forms of the illness. But because of that, kids aren't really getting tested in the in the numbers that adults are getting. I think that's an important point. And I think the other important point uh, on the health end of this, before we jump back into uh, Tino taking a look at the economy is, um, People don't know. The scariest part for me is people don't know if they have underlying conditions. And this thing exacerbates underlying conditions that you might have. The liver produces the antibodies that fights this. And if you have certain kinds of underlying conditions, these antibodies go out and start attacking other parts of your body. And that's what's leading to, uh, you know, such a horrific uh, death rate. But back to the economy. This thing keeps going on, Tino. We don't have a national strategy, which is crazy. We had a national strategy when there was one shoe bomb on a plane, and all of a sudden we have TSA and everybody has to go through this whole rigmarole because of one event. You know, this is killing 180,000 people, 5 million cases, and we still don't have a national strategy. If this keeps lingering, what's going to happen to the economy? What's the economy going to look like, you know, six, we're six months into this. What's it look like six months from now? Well, you know, I think we're ending, you know, this is going to, this is starting to sound a little bit sort of repetitive, but I think we're entering into a new normal. I think there's going to be a lot of change. I think there's going to be a fair amount of structural changes that are going to occur just like happened after the financial crisis. Um, businesses are going to find that they can do more with less people. I mean, they're having to adjust right now to produce the same amount of goods with people being ill. I mean, if you think about, for example, the meatpacking business uh, where everybody was getting ill and, you know, and, we can still go get our, our, our chickens and what have you. There was a there was a short term shock whereby it was more difficult to, to get, but but things have changed now. So um, that's going to be part of the longer term uh, effects. I think is just the structural change in the economy. Um, so you know, skills are going to become sort of uh, some skills may become irrelevant um, or at least become much lower in demand. 
other things that sort of what I'm hoping is that we have sort of a, a look at our social safety net system that we talked about earlier. I think that's something that's that's going to have to come up for some changes. Uh, I, I think it's ludicrous that, you know, if I'm in Taiwan, I can go get a COVID test and they charge me 13 cents, whereas here, you know, I can get charged anywhere from 13 cents to $10,000. Um, so there's, you know, and just and just finding out that so many people are losing their health insurance and what's that going to do? And as Cindy alluded to, absolutely, absolutely, well, not alluded to, but stated, absolutely the health and the economy are intrinsically tied together. There, there's no way to separate sure. them. If it Without people, is, you don't have an economy, and, that, and 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 on both the supply and demand side. So right, and if if employers say no business travel till the end of the year, then you know what happens to the airline industry? Exactly, and I mean, and there's some frustration here too. I think sort of Boeing kind of <laughs> Boeing Boeing got lucky, right? They're they're just in the middle of their whole Max Thirty thing, and. Um, and suddenly they have this excuse that they can get $500 million loan from the government because now they, they're not flying. So they can basically cover their, their, their debts and what have you. Um, they're over during the max. Yeah. Yeah. I mean this, so that kind of helped them. I mean, they got lucky. Um, but yeah, I mean, what we need, I think that's, that's my great hope. And I think a lot of people hope here is that the United States economy starts rethinking how we are going to do not only healthcare, not only how we're going to do unemployment insurance, but I think another big piece of the puzzle that is severely lacking, particularly for many working Americans, is childcare. And so, you know, a lot of there's some evidence to suggest that people aren't going back to work, not because there's no jobs or not because they can't. It's because who's going to take care of their kids? Right. And now with the school thing, I mean, it, you know, where do you stop? I mean, it's, it's just and then and then and then. Sure. There's so many, so, so many tentacles. Yeah, and I'm, th I'm thinking here. I think in a year or so, it's going to be a different, a, a different world. You know, I was talking with my wife last night about this, about, you know, we were not, we didn't grow up after, during, before and after the Spanish pandemic, right? So what the, the world that we inherited was normal. So there's going to be a new normal for people that are growing up now. It's going to be the post-COVID world, right? The AC, you know, what's seven year, you know, seven AC, that's the new normal. And how is that? we're able to sort of witness what that structural break is going to end up being both to the economy, to our systems, to a lot of number, a number of things. And hopefully the way we view each other and rather than having this divisive thing, we need to start thinking about trying to, 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 to put that to rest because it's not well, constructive. I was going to say, it also speaks to you got to both you and Cindy, just the, the value and the knowledge that you bring to the community and certainly beyond just our local community you know no one was i didn't think about our public health officials before march 16th of 2020 uh i knew cindy but i didn't think about her all that much other than when i saw her you know with her husband etc that far sight sign but cindy and now i not only do i know what cindy does but i realize what a value she provides to the community as you tina like just well, plus really, cindy's cindy's become a media star but she's and a knowledge base exactly. But Tino too. I mean, it's like yeah. think about it. Like they're looking at our, our 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 community and looking at our economy and how this is impacting it. And it's just incredible knowledge that uh, we don't think about this sector or that sector and how it's performing or that it has to be reimagined. And that's what's happening, right? This is shaking up everything, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, with our with our final moments, what are you guys? What would you? What's the optimum for each of you? What would you like to see happen? You know, thirty, sixty, ninety days out. What you? What would you like to see happen, Cindy? I would love it if everybody would just believe that this is really a thing, and and that the best thing that we can do to protect our world is to protect each other. And that means wearing a mask, staying six feet away from each other, staying home when you're sick. You'd be surprised how many people that we know that have tested positive that, oh, well, I wasn't, wasn't really feeling good. So I went to work for a couple of days before I stayed home. You know, stay home if you're sick. Keep your kids home if they're sick. And just care for your fellow human beings around you. That's the best thing that could happen um, is, that, you know, we start really caring about each other and try and keep control of this virus. Well, Tino, last words. 
Well, I mean, you know, there's a short-term answer and a longer-term answer. The short-term answer is we, you know, to keep the economy rolling uh, and to allow people to recover from being sick because that's a big piece of the puzzle. People aren't are are going to work because they have to. You know, there's there's no, you know, we, you know, five days of paid sick leave. I mean, that's up and that's already gone, coming on for many people. So in the short term, what we need to do from an economic standpoint is support the economy. I mean, Congress, the Senate has to get their act together and get this thing taken care of. Um, we'll, we'll worry about the repercussions later down the road once this economy recovers. But until then, we have to do that. Longer term, I think it's we have to reimagine the social safety net and we have to figure out so that people can, if they if they can't, if they are feeling sick and they, they have to take two or three days off, they're not at risk of, of not putting food on the table at the same time. And that's, a, that, you know, something like 80% of Americans live basically paycheck to paycheck. And we need to come up with a better way of doing our economy or our economy has to rethink. Uh, it doesn't have to be centrally planned, but as an economy as a whole has to rethink how can we get people so that they are not so susceptible and not so on the edge all of the time? Those are good words to end by, Scott, don't you think? I sure do. I mean, you know, our guests were Tina Sonora from the University of Montana. He is the Associate Director of Health Research with the uh, Business School. And also Cindy Farr, who is the Incident Commander of COVID-19 Response for the City and County of Missoula. We really appreciate you guys coming on with Arnie and I. Would you guys come back and give us an update again in a few more months? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yes, absolutely. And hopefully we'll have better news to report. Right. Hopefully this won't turn into the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll still be alive, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're doing better than any of us right now, Tina, where you are. So, oh, you, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, he's in a hidden location. Anyway, Arnie, I will see you next week. Thanks, folks. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know? I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you. On Fridays, Montana. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.